Well, it's uh, going to be my privilege to uh, bring our next part of the service, which is an interview with Simon Thomas. Simon is our guest today. He's been on Blue Peter in the past, now with Sky Sports, and we're so looking forward to hearing his story and his journey. So there's going to be a short uh, video just to introduce uh, those themes, and then would you give an enormous welcome to Simon as he comes up onto the stage. Please watch this first. Simon Thomas. Morning. Oh, it's Simon. afternoon now. Great to see you. Nice to see Welcome. you. Afternoon, Peterborough. Nice to see you. Oh, you're on the money. Five past twelve. Great, Simon. It's great to have you with us. No, it lovely. really is. We're very Thanks grateful. It's Father's Day. I know yeah. you left the, the house um, in Norwich where you're staying with family before you even had a chance to say Happy Father's Day, or you, actually your son would say that to you, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would. Yeah, No, he was, was fast asleep, which is rare, because we're staying with my sister, and he's with his cousin Thomas, and they get on like a house on fire. They were up at six yesterday playing FIFA, <laughs> but no sign this morning, so he's obviously having a line, but I've had a little uh, voice memo from oh, him, telling, nice. telling me that Great. he loves me, which is oh. pretty nice. Anyway... Um, <clears throat> Not, what, not much for sentiment, the second service. Anyway. No, that's fine. That, that was so good, the first <laughs> service. Engaged. Now, this would be great. Now, um, you're married to Gemma and Ethan. I think we can see a photo here of you as a, as a family. Tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing, family life for you right now. Anything else you want to say just to introduce yourselves? Yeah, so uh, Gemma's there. Quite the easy one to pop spot there. She's, uh, we've been together 14, 15 years. Uh, got married in 2005, and Ethan's seven and a bit. Uh, but I grew up, I'm a Norfolk boy. Uh, I was born in Norwich. Uh, lived in Cromer for three years. My dad's, is there someone from Cromer here? I was going to say, oh my goodness me, that's a long way to travel. Um, and then, my so my dad was a vicar, so he was curate in Cromer for three years. And then we moved to a little village called Grimston, which is about seven miles away from Kings Lynn, and Kings Lynn obviously not too far mm -hmm. uh, from here yeah. before then we headed down to Surrey. And then the last place my dad was vicaring before he retired was Beckles in Suffolk. And now they're retired to Cromer. Both my sisters live in villages outside Norwich. So I'm the only one. We live down in uh, Berkshire, uh, okay. in Caversham near Reading. So I, I hope one day to return uh, to Norfolk because it's just the best. Very good. Now, when we, we had a quick Skype in the week, and um, you, you, your home is now on the bank of the River Thames, and you were invaded by Canadian geese yeah. who uh, sabotage your garden. I've been thinking of you this week. Did you manage to shift the geese? Uh, yeah, well, we're right by the Thames. It's a, it's a lovely place to live, but these Canadian geese, my goodness me, they are prolific breeders. <laughs> and uh, they just wander into the garden. So Andrew and myself, were, were, we were doing a Skype call to go through today, and Gemma had just got back from yoga. Je Gemma didn't know that we were Skyping, so she walks into my little study room with not a great deal on. Um, fortunately, she didn't appear in front of the camera, uh, but she came in to tell me that the Canadian geese had invaded again, and they just come in, they eat the grass, but they poo everywhere. And it's a nightmare. So when Ethan goes out with his friends to play football, there's a lot of sliding tackles, but not deliberate <laughs> sliding tackles. Very good. It's a tough life, isn't it? Don't you think, Canadian geese on the lawn? I know. First world problems. But anyway, it's great to have you with us today. And um, obviously, we're interested in your media career, um, Blue Peter, Sky Sports Now. But uh, would you just share a little bit about how you got into that? Because it's not everyone who gets into that kind of world. Going back a little bit, yeah. what was your route in? So I, I grew up watching Blue Peter. Um, when, when I used to watch it as a kid, there were very few channels. So, I mean, you used to get phenomenal audience figures. Many, many millions used to watch it. And the likes of dear old John Notes, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, you know, they, they were like the pop stars of today. So I used yeah. to watch it, and I used to think nothing more than 
that would be an incredible program to work on. But I never, ever dreamt that I'd end up on it. But I went to university in 1992, and one of the many societies the university had was called Guild TV. And they had their very own little TV station. Nobody watched it. It went out on TVs throughout the student union. Not a single person watched it. It was never even turned up. But they had a proper studio. There was a BBC Studios nearby called Pebble Mill, which is where all the output in the mornings used to come from. So someone had got all this second-hand equipment, so they had three cameras, they have a proper gallery with a vision Brilliant. mixing mm. desk, you know, not as good as the stuff you've got at the back here, but it was a proper setup. So I started doing this program called The Lunchbox on a Friday. It was a terrible program. But what it ended up doing was just giving me an opportunity to find out what it's like and a bit of what it takes to present. And when I left university, a friend of mine said, you know, you, you really mm. should give that a go. And so I went back to Suffolk, to Beckles, where mum and dad were, trying to think, what am I going to do now? Finish university, where's my career going? And I thought, this is where I want to go. And Blue Peter yeah. is the program I'm going to... have got to have an aim. So I thought, I'm going to dream big here. I'm going to go for Blue Peter. Uh, and I sat there in my bedroom in Suffolk. It was a roasting day, a bit like today. And I thought, right, what do we do? So I, I picked up a book, and I got this book on how to make it as a television, television presenter. I made a showreel tape. I went down into Beckles Town Centre. This sounds random, but in this book, it said good tip for a showreel, do something while talking to camera to show you can do a bit of everything. So, so what took, did you do? I took the ironing board, <laughs> iron, um, a load of washing, and ironed in the middle of Beckles Town Centre. People give me the most ridiculous looks ever. Got my mate to film it, and just started sending it off. It went to Blue Peter first of all. I just got a letter back a few weeks later saying, thanks, but no thanks, we'll keep your details on file. But before that, on that afternoon, before I went out to do the showreel, before I wrote the letters, I sat there and thought, is this just a pipe dream? Mm. Is this worth giving myself three years to make? And I might get to the end of it and have nothing and have to go and do something really dull. And I sat there and thought, actually, because I've been brought up in a Christian household, I was a Christian, I had a faith. I thought, is God in this? Yeah. Or is this just me? And I thought, do you know what? It might be a good idea to pray about this before I go and waste three years of my life. So I, I remember sat there in my bedroom and I just said, God, you know, I don't know whether this is just me. I don't know whether this is something you want me to do. But if it is, just give me a sign, a strong sign that I'm not about to waste three years of my life. Oh, yeah. Amen. And off I went downstairs. My dad had gone out, so I used his old Mac computer and started to write the letters. And as I started writing letters to various TV companies asking to try and get a job as a runner while the tape was going to go off to Blue Peter, I looked to my left, and there was my dad's pile of papers. And on top was a Christian magazine. And on the side of the magazine were all the little sub-headlines that tell you what's in the, in the magazine. And one of them said, why we need more Christians in the media. So the, wow. the heart skipped a beat, wow. got to page 64, whatever it was. And it had been written by a lady called Pam Rhodes, who used mm -hmm. to present on Songs of Praise, and a guy called Steve Chalk, who runs the Oasis Trust charity, who I actually ended up working with a few years later. And it's a little bit like when you sometimes sit in a church like this or, or other churches, when you hear someone talking at the front, there's, there's those occasions you get where it feels like that talk is just aimed at you. It's almost as if no one else in the room. Mm. It's so personal. Yeah. And it was like this whole article had been written for me. You know, a lot of Christians, not everyone, but some say, look, you need to steer clear of the media. But what did Jesus do? When he was here for those years, that short amount of time, mm. he got stuck in. He got his hands dirty. Oh, he didn't hover yeah. around the edge of Jerusalem and say, you come to me. He went to them. And it said, you know, if you're going to change the media, if you're not happy with how the media looks, if you're not happy with the kind of yeah, programs you're seeing there. on there, mm. get in there. Get involved. And I just read it and thought, that's my green light. It took nearly four years, not three. But as we know, God's time is often quite different to ours. It is. Yeah. But it was, it was a long, long journey. And it was fantastic. my third attempt. Yeah, fantastic.
Really helpful. And I suppose it's really helpful because even if uh, not in the media world, lots of us will have dreams, things yeah. that we've thought in the past. Maybe, I sh maybe God's calling me to this, to do this, or enter that kind of industry or work. Um, what would your advice be, having been through that journey, how do you follow a dream and see it happen like that? Well, you follow a dream by you have to start chasing the dream. You know, when they say, talk about chasing the dream, that means you need to do something. Yeah. You can't sit there and just wait for it to happen, like it's just gonna drop out the sky and suddenly that dream job or whatever it is is gonna appear out of nowhere. It might for some, but for a lot it won't. Chase the dream, do something about it, start working. Perseverance is a massive thing in yeah, chasing dreams. On. You'll get knockbacks, you'll get people telling you you're wasting your time. I had one or two people saying, look, why are you chasing this? You're just wasting your time. But actually, if you believe in that dream, if you are fired up by something you want to go and do, there will be people who will try and knock you back. That's the point at which you get up and you go again. Yeah. You know, after the service, we had the first one this morning, a young guy came up to me, uh, and he wants to make it as a musician. He just said, thanks for what you said, because I've had so many people telling me I'm wasting my time, but I love playing on my guitar, and I want to make it as a musician. I said, keep go chasing that dream. Yeah. You're going to have to work hard. Yeah. You're going to get more knockbacks. You're going to get more people telling you you can't do it but just go for it. Yeah. And the best piece of advice is, like I had at that very start, keep God right at Come the center on. of that dream. Mm. Fantastic. Great advice. Great advice. Let's, let's turn a corner, because I'm eager to talk about Blue Peter. I'm a bit okay. of a fan, both yeah. from my own days, but also I've got three kids. Yeah. Who, uh, are now, 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 this is extraordinary. This, they are Blue Peter fans, and they've, they've acquired this collection of badges. My three kids. That, that's that's worth a round of applause. I've they, never they, seen that big a collection. I thought these, these things would be filling your drawers. But anyway, um, I don't know what they're all for, if I'm honest. Purple is something to do with going on. I there. think if you send in a review of the program. Review of the program. Okay. Yeah, they'll give you a purple one. I, I have to say there's, there, there are others I don't. I mean, the green ones, uh, if you do something environmental, there's Deciding. a silver badge. Not a gold one, though. No, now the gold badge. Yeah. Now the gold badge. So this is one of my children's questions. What do you have to do to get a gold badge? Because he'd gone online. He's got the silver badge, but he'd gone online and realized that one of the things it said was you have to save somebody's life. Yeah, that's right. Next thing I hear is my other son coming crying because he's been pushed in the pond and <laughs> no. dragged out again. Seriously? A staged life rescue, yeah. Wow. So can he, he, get he a ain't going to get a badge for that. <laughs> so the question is, can he get a badge for that? And if no. not, what do you have to do to get a gold badge? Um, you can be a presenter. Be a presenter. I, I got okay. given one. You've got a gold badge? I've lost it. Lost it. No, well, we moved house six years ago. It is somewhere. It's in a box somewhere, but I can't find it. Um, or save someone's life, an act of bravery, or if you're the queen. Yeah, no, we were chatting just earlier. You actually presented Her Majesty with the gold blue piece badge. Yeah, it was for her jubilee. I like the little gag as well. Yeah, well, well, basically, so she visits the BBC, she visits TV Centre. Uh, before she arrives, about an hour before she arrives, her PR woman came in, quite a haughty type, and she came up to all of us, so we had a line of current presenters and ex-presenters, and she comes up to each one of you, and I'd been asked, because they basically thought I was the one least likely to mess up, to present Her Majesty the Badge. She says, what are you going to say? I said, I've got a little gag for the Queen. She says, the Queen doesn't do gags. I'll come back in a couple of minutes, work out something else to say. So off she goes, comes back, says, right, what are you going to say? So I told her the gag, said, right, if you stick to those words, you can give her the badge. And eventually, the Queen arrives, and it's an amazing moment, because she is so, so familiar, that you actually feel like you know her, and then you realise it's the Queen. Wow. And eventually she arrived at me, and I'm the last one in the line. And uh, I just said, Your Majesty, it's lovely to meet you. And on behalf of the program, I'd like to give you the program's highest award. It is a gold blue Peter badge. And you might be interested to know you can get into the Tower of London free with this. <laughs> and I, I, I had a little royal chuckle, and off she shuffled. A royal it was chuckle. a lovely moment. It's a good line. <laughs> I like it. Anyway, Blue Peter, then, you've been a presenter there. You were a presenter there for quite a few years. How many years? Six. Six years. Yeah. 
And um, one of the things I noticed, I've watched it quite a lot, the presenters, you get to do some pretty amazing stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I've seen clips of you covered in mud from the Dead Sea. Uh, we've got one of you, a picture of you actually with, with Mr. Bean. Yeah, slightly random. I did a blue Peter, on the set. blue Peter make with him. Yeah, Mr. Rowan Atkinson. He, he's a stickler for rehearsals. We had to do that make about eight times before really? we did the show live. Yeah, wow. but it, everything about it is timing for him. He's an okay. utter professional. But you have those moments where you're not sure is he now being Rowan or is he being Mr. Bean? And at times it was a bit of a grey area. <laughs> Tough but transitions. Amazing guy to work with. So you've done that. You covered in mud. You, you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. But of all, all of the experiences you've had. If you could do one of them again, or which, which is a sort of standout Blue Peter presenter experience? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary thinking back on it, um, of all the things. You forget some of the things you do, and then you pull out. I always used to take a lot of photos, because I thought, I don't think I'll ever watch many films back. Yeah. And I haven't watched a film I did for, for a long time. I've got all the VHS tapes, that's how old I am. But there's a few on DVDs when the DVD recorders came out. But I've got loads of photograph albums, and I just thought, that's the best way to remember it. So sometimes pull out an album, you're reminded of where you went. But I, I did a trip to the Solomon Islands, which are a two-hour flight away from Brisbane, which is on the east coast of Australia. They are in the middle of nowhere. Wow. But one of our directors, Alex, had worked out there in, in a gap year many, many years ago. And we spent two weeks on a boat with the guys called the Melanesian Brotherhood, and they're Christian guys. Uh, they go into various villages on all the many, many islands in the Solomon Islands and, and basically take God's word to them. So we, we spent two weeks with them and it was amazing watching them at work uh, and also visiting different islands where diff there are different traditions. And one island I remember in particular uh, was the island where the only surviving pagan priest in the Solomon Islands remained. A tiny island. You could walk from the top to the bottom of the island in 20 minutes. But at the top of the island was a tiny little wooded area. And a, across we went, walked in there. And there is the final surviving pagan priest wow. of the Solomon Islands. And he, and he sat there. And as we walked through this tiny wood, straight away, I'm struck by a lot of bones on the floor. There are bones everywhere. And I'm thinking, why, do they, why are there animal bones? I very quickly realized they were actually human bones. There were skulls. There were femurs. There were arms absolutely wow. everywhere. And it turned out that these bones that were across that wooded floor were his ancestors. His ancestors. And so we sat down and for a translator, we interviewed him. And at the end of the interview, I thought, well, we were getting on well, and he seemed pretty chilled out. I said, is there any chance, through the translator, I could have a picture with one of his relatives? And he said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Take a pic of it. So, so I basically uh, picked that one up. Uh, I have no idea which relative it was, or his or her name, but... Yeah, I show that to people sometimes. They say, you know, they think it's a joke skull, but that was actually one of the ancestors of the pagan priest. So it's moments like that, and you, I remember standing there thinking, I'll probably, I will never, ever do anything like yeah. this again. And you have to, you know, they talk about living for the moment, seizing the day, carpe diem and all that. You just have to seize those moments and go, this is extraordinary. It was moments like that that you never forget. That's where a Blue Peter presenter can get you. That's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Not many people have been there. No, it's amazing. Or shown that photo here in Peterborough. Love it. <laughs> um, now, as well as those sorts of amazing experiences, I, I think they often test you as well, don't they, on yeah. Peter? They want the presenters to actually, not just a walk in the park yeah. or in the Solomon Islands, but a real challenge. So what would be the, the hardest, most challenging thing you did in that period? Well, I mean, we, we got hammered many times by the armed services. We did the, me and Matt Baker did the P Company course. Uh, the parachute troopers training course in Catrick, horrendous. Uh, we, did, we got beasted by the Royal Marines. 
uh, down in the West Country, horrific. The one I thought I'd be okay with, but actually turned out to be quite the opposite, was skydiving. So Blue Peter have covered skydiving many times down the years, and when I joined the programme, they'd just done a load of films on it. So we waited four years, and obviously there's a, a new generation coming through. So they said, right, we're ready to do it again. And, and, and basically the centrepiece of all this would be to do the training with the RAF Falcons, and then wow. at a display somewhere in the UK, the next summer, I would perform with them. So I'd jump out the plane and do the rings and the, the stack canopy formation they do as they come down. I just couldn't believe I had this opportunity. So I was taken out to San Diego where they do their winter training. The reason they go there is you can jump every single day. So I had my little booklet on the uh, accelerated freefall program. I read that on the plane heading out there, went out with the RAF Falcons. We arrive in San Diego, blue skies, amazing place. And we get to the drop zone, the, the parachute field the first day. And, and, and you know, listen, I knew it was going to be hard. I was under no illusions. But I felt, you know, I had no problem with heights. I'd already abseiled out of a helicopter. I thought I'd be fine with this. And you do your drills on the ground. had half a day of doing various drills on, in terms of your hand position when you're falling through the sky. And then you get in the plane for the first time. The engine starts. There's that unmistakable smell of aeroplane fuel, which is quite different to car fuel. And then this thing takes off, and it crawls up to 14,500 feet. It takes forever. And you're sat there with a load of people, and one of the byproducts of going up in a plane that's not pressurized like a commercial aircraft is that it does various things to the body. And one of them, unfortunately, and I think this is partly due to nerves as well, but there's a lot of flatulence <laughs> in the plane. So there's, it, there's a horrible smell. And then eventually, you get to 14,500 feet, and some lunatic... At this point, you are thinking lunatic, <laughs> rips this door open, and everybody you've just been sat with disappears, and you follow them out. Mm. And I remember as we were just about to go, I thought, what an... As they say in, in training, why would you want to jump out of a perfectly healthy aircraft? Anyway, we did the first jump, did the next jump, we did another jump, and we did another jump. And after every single jump, the Falcons would then sit... So they basically, you jump out on your own, but you have a Falcon either side of you holding on to your arms to get your body position right in the sky. If you get your body position wrong, because you're dropping at 120 miles per hour, you can wow. get into a spin, and that means a big problem in terms of opening your parachute. So they get you trained to keep your body nice and level, and then you can do other stuff like twists and turns and somersaults. But after every jump, they'd show you the video. So you're right, you got that right, you got that wrong. Fourth jump, up we go again. Jump out of 14,500 feet, I get to 5,500 feet, which for a learner is the pull height. I pull the ripcord, nothing happens. Wow. And then I'm aware that something is happening on my back and I can feel this bashing. And it, it went on for a lot longer than it was, but for what seemed at the time like an eternity, there was no parachute coming out. And the mistake they made, and they admitted this later, is we got down, we went back to the crew room, and they showed me the video of what had happened. And you can see Toby and Roger, my instructors, punching the bag to get the parachute out, and my bottle went. I can remember my heart pounding. I said, I can't get in the plane again. I managed to do two more jumps, but they were utterly, utterly horrendous. And I went home with a tail between my legs. It made an interesting program, because what I did end up doing was showing vulnerability that actually I was dealing with something that was a far bigger challenge than I'd ever had. And that next summer, I went to uh, Oxford uh, and did a couple of more jumps there and got my bottle back. I'll tell you why I got my bottle back. It's because I went up on the plane. I remember sitting there, and there was a lady opposite me. And I could tell she was a bit older than me. And I just leaned over and shouted above the noise of the props, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? She said, 75. I said, what number jump is this? And I can't remember exactly, but it was around about her 460th jump wow. or something. I thought, if that lady's getting out, <laughs> I'm following her. So I got my bottle back. And, and I said to the program, can I go back to San Diego, try again, conquer my fear? Mm. And they reluctantly said yes, and it cost a lot of money. So out we went with less Falcons this time. And I arrive back there, and we're back in the same hotel. And you know how smells can be very evocative, and they mm. remind you of things. 
The hotel obviously smelt the same. The blue skies were there. And all the fears that I'd left there with those months before came, came flooding, back. Yeah. flooding back. I didn't sleep a wink that night. And i tell you what I wrestled with is that at its most basic, when you jump out of a plane with a parachute, you are effectively putting your life in the hands of, of two bits of sheeting and some nylon string. If both fail, which is very, very, very unlikely, if both fail, you are going to find out whether this God that I believed mm. in, this Jesus story of him rising from the dead that we might have life and life eternal with it, I'm going to find out if it's true or not. It's I true. couldn't sleep yeah. that night before. And I woke up in a cold sweat when I eventually got to sleep. I went down, my director said, you look, you look awful. I said, oh, I haven't slept, but my heart was pounding. I rang Gemma, and they were a few hours ahead. I said, I don't know what to do. She said, give Phil a ring. Now, there's a guy called Phil Wall who's been a bit of a mentor to me. He spoke at our wedding. He said, ring me any time, because he knew I was struggling. So I rang him up, and he prayed for me down the phone. He just said, God, you know, just said, Jesus, right now for Simon, may he know in a really, really tangible way that you are real, and you are with him as he goes out that mm. plane. I nipped across to Dunkin' Donuts after we said amen to get some donuts for the boys as you do. in the minibus <laughs> on the way to the drop zone. And as I stood at the traffic lights about to go back over to get in the van, I felt a tap on my shoulder. And I looked round. There was a young American guy. I'd never seen him in my life. And he tapped me on the shoulder. I turned round, and he just said, I want you to know that Jesus is real and Jesus loves you. Wow. Wow. I was, and I, I was stunned for a moment. I looked round, and the guy had gone. This could not see him anywhere. And it wasn't a busy street. And I felt like at that moment an angel had come. Mm. And some might people say ridiculous coincidence. But at that moment, a few minutes before, I'd been prayed for that it would be revealed mm. that God is real. Mm. And there was this guy, a random guy saying that. And I went on and had just the most amazing 10 days. I conquered the course. I passed Brilliant. the course. I mean, this Brilliant. was the, the final jump we did, me and the boys. And we, just, we went up in shorts and T-shirt and we did spins. I'm afraid I haven't got the video, but we just had the most incredible time. And it made a really good show because what it showed young kids out there who are struggling to conquer things, who are struggling with fears, is that actually you can overcome them. Yeah. You can actually conquer your fears. And it made for a really... You know, I'm not bigging up the program here, but just made a, a program that kids could relate to. And I got a lot of emails and letters in from mum and dad saying, you've really helped mm. my little one because they've been struggling with this. And, and seeing you struggle has been really important Brilliant. for them. Fantastic. Really helpful for us. Yeah. Really helpful. We've all, uh, we all face our fears, don't we? And I guess um, that both the vulnerability, but also you've obviously picked up there on your faith, which is yeah. ultimately what really carried the day over in San Diego that time. Tell us a bit about that. Have you always had faith? Was, have there been moments where that's become very real? Tell us your faith story a bit there. So as I mentioned at the start, I grew up, grew up being a vicar's son. God was very much part of you know, family life, um, but not in, a, not in an overbearing way. One thing I'll always be thankful to my parents for, and my dad as well, you know, is that I didn't feel under pressure to go to yeah. church, but it was part of family life. And I grew up being aware of God and obviously hearing the various stories in Sunday school. My best friends were at Sunday school. I just grew up with it. And there were those, still those moments that even as a, as a kid where you wonder, you know, is this true? Mm. You know, has all this that I'm learning about actually happened? You know, is my dad's job, has it actually got substance behind it? Or is it just an excuse to dress it? You know, he wore clerical stuff and all that. Um, you know, what's all this about? I had those moments. Um, but I had, um, and I, I just want to say at this point, as I tell this story, that I don't have these instances happening all the time before people think this is a bit odd. Um, but I was seven years old, so we were living in Grimston, seven miles away from Kings Lynn, not too far from here. 
And I was seven, uh, my sister Becky was six, uh, and my younger sister Hannah uh, hadn't even had her first birthday. And it rained all morning. We were bald stiff, going out of our minds. And Dad had had meetings all day. And the sun cleared in the afternoon. So he said, right, let's, let's get out. You've been in the house all day. Let's get out. Let's go for a walk. So we went to these woods not too far away from where we live called Massingham Woods. And it's, it's essentially a pine forest. So for me, it's a little bit disappointing because I was at the age where every tree had to be climbed. But, you know, a pine tree is not easy to climb. Mm. But eventually, we got to this big old tree, like a yew tree, and up I went, scrambled up it. And eventually, I came down, and I sort of sat in the middle of the yew bit here, with my legs lower like they are now in this seat. Uh, And my mum was there, my dad was here, Becky was there, my mum was holding Hannah. And it started to rain again, and we had plenty of shelter. And mum said, I think we need to go to the other side of the clearing to get in the shelter. And we were like, you know, we're ridiculous. We are under as much shelter as a wood can possibly offer. And about a minute or so later, she says it again. She says, I think we need to move across the other side of the clearing. And again, we're saying, don't be ridiculous. Dad's saying, you know, come on, Jill, we don't need to move. This is, this is bonkers. And then she said it for the third time. And, and all those years on, I can still see the look in her eye wow. as she said it, holding Hannah. She said, we need to move, and we need to move now. So reluctantly, I got out the tree. Reluctantly, Dad and myself and Becky walked across with Mum. And we got to the other side of the clearing. And it was only seconds later and I can still hear it now. It sounded like someone was flying a tornado jet at low level through the forest. I remember looking up, and there was a, a, a tunnel of fire. It just looked like an absolute fireball coming across our heads, followed by just this huge explosion. And then seconds later, this almighty thud. And the tree that I'd been sat in seconds before ends up looking like that. And you can see wow. my mum there. Wow. So I always get a bit emotional about this. Um, my mum there with Hannah. And we went back later that evening with some friends, um, and a friend of ours took that picture, and I have it up on my desk now at home. But our friends later, and we were very traumatized by it, but I was with uh, my parents' friends in the lounge later that evening, and and Rosemary said to my mum, why did you move? Because there was no reason for you to move. And she said, well, I just heard what I really firmly believe was God's voice saying, you need to move now. And some people might say, well, again, coincidence, that's just a bit, you're a bit lucky. But, you know, years and years later, I was at a church a bit similar to this. Uh, in London, and randomly afterwards, one of the leaders of the church who didn't know my story, and I hadn't told that story, he came up to me and he was chatting. He said, I just, you know, just want to know that we, we pray for you on Blue Peter, just that you, you know, you're encouraged. And he said, when you were seven, something happened really spectacular to you that gave wow. you a real reminder that God's real. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, and then he got killed by a lightning ball. <laughs> and I look at that picture every now and again on my desk, and it reminds me that at that moment in my life, mm. in a very dramatic way, God made himself really real, not just to me, but to my family. And had God not spoken to my mum on that day, I don't know why he spoke to mum, why he doesn't speak to others mm. in situations similar. Mm. But he did speak to mum that through day. To you. And, and we moved, and, and here I am. Yeah, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Life is punctuated, isn't it, by those moments where God just shows us yeah. some stuff. And, um, so you've obviously carried faith through then. Uh, from fairly young age, through all the different challenges. You're now no longer with Blue Peter, but with Sky, yep. Sky, Sky Sports. Just tell us a little bit about how you've progressed from the one to the other and what, what you do now. So I, I, I knew early on when I, when I got the job on Blue Peter, which, you know, that was, that was dream number one ticks. But I, I, I was fairly realistic and not arrogant enough to think that, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you've got a job for life now. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that when I got to the end of the six years, there'd necessarily be a job waiting for me. And my passion has always been, as, as well as a lot of other things, but sport. I absolutely love sport. I've supported Norwich all, my, all of my life. Any Norwich fans in? 
dear. A single one. Any Ipswich fans in? That's a relief. There, there were two here in the first service. But that was my big passion. So I did a lot of sports films on BP, but I was very clear that when my time came to an end there, that that's where I wanted to go. And I had a really depressing meeting when I came to leave Blue Peter with the head of BBC Sport. He just said to me very frankly, he said, I just don't see a kids presenter working in BBC Sport. I, I thought that was a bit a little bit narrow-minded, mm. but that door closed. Uh, and a few weeks later, I went to Sky and said, look, I, you know, I, I can present live TV. I'm not a broadcast journalist, sports broadcast journalist, but I want to learn a new skill. I'll start wherever you put me. And they put me on Sports News. So I started on Sky Sports News in 2005. And over the years, I started doing little bits more and ended up presenting live football league for the last four and a half, five years. And then last season, which is where I wanted to get to, I wasn't ever sure I'd make it, but I wanted to get the Premier League gig. So yeah. last summer, I got given the Premier League Brilliant. myself and another guy called David Jones. He does Sundays and Mondays. I do, I do Saturdays and midweek in the League Cup as well. So over the course of 11 years, I've sort of slowly gone up the ladder. And, and now I have just this enormous privilege of, you know, often football fans will bump into, so I cannot believe you get paid to talk about football. And it's, it's an absolute privilege. Uh, and I'm very, very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah, fantastic. Wow, so, um, yeah. A round of applause, even though it's the wrong sport. I've, uh, I, have, I have had words with Simon that I've been watching Sky Sports, but the rugby. Come on, the Lions. Come on, the Lions. Listen, yeah. I love my rugby as well, but I had to pick one. But yeah, I, I will did. be watching next yeah, week. Next week. Yeah. Anyway, more of that later. But uh, in terms of Sky Sports, obviously, it's, you're doing live broadcasting, yeah. which is a pr I can only imagine must be a pretty pressured environment because, uh, you know, there's no room for error. It's in the moment. So tell us a little bit about what would be the most pressured in fixture that you've presented and how do you deal with that pressure? Uh, it's, it's an easy one to pick. So uh, two years ago, my team, Norwich, uh, get to the <laughs> championship playoff final. Yeah. Biggest game in the country. You know, it's, it's got such a lot riding on it. And I, I'd presented the two semi-finals against Ipswich, which was an utter joy as we dispatched our Suffolk rivals. But it dawned on me as I left Carrow Road after the second leg, I thought, good grief, I've now got to present my team in the biggest game of the season yeah, for a wow. place in the Premier League against Middlesbrough. <laughs> and I, I just thought, I, don't know, I do not know how I'm going to do this. And I remember on the day itself and looking around Wembley Stadium, so we presented pitch side. So we're standing in front of the Norwich dugout on the, on the hallowed turf of Wembley. And I'm looking behind me at all the half of the stadium that was bathed in the red of Middlesbrough. And then over that way, I'm looking at the, the other half bathed in the green and yellow of Norwich City. And I just felt my heart going and I felt quite emotional. And I look up at the rows above me where I thought just about they would be, and I can see my sister Becky and my nieces and my nephews and other friends all getting ready for this amazing moment. And then I'm suddenly thinking, good grief, I'm about to go on air, and you hear the DA who counts you down, she says, on air in 10 seconds. And I suddenly had to put all the emotions to one side, and fortunately you've got this switch in your head that goes on, yeah. and you kind of go into professional mode. Yeah. But it was, it was without doubt the most pressure I've felt because I knew that everyone would be giving me extra scrutiny. All the Norwich fans want you to be absolutely biased. <laughs> Oh, yeah. All the Middlesbrough fans are looking for the slightest hint that you're favouring your team Norwich. And it was just, how on earth do I play this? And I, I kept it in check until the moment that Nathan Redmond makes it 2-0 with that wonderful shot into the bottom left-hand corner. And in the studio, which we'd gone to in the meantime, up in, up in the stands of Wembley, I just screamed the loudest <laughs> scream ever. And about 10 seconds later, the poor sound guy who's down in the trucks in the bowels of Wembley says, yeah, thanks, mate, and that's the eardrum's gone. I said, sorry, mate. I, just, I had to let myself go for that moment. But that, I mean, that was the most, the most pressure, pressure I've ever felt mm. to get it right. But I knew I'd got it right when, you know, a lot of the tweets you get after a football game are not particularly nice, but that's yeah. just football for you. Yeah. But one tweet came in from an Ipswich fan 
And he said, I just want to say today, I'd have never guessed you were a Norwich fan. Well played. Well, fair play. I thought, if that's coming from an Ipswich yeah. fan, I've obviously done something a straight right. straight bat. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Now, listen, obviously, what's great for us to think about is that you're in this incredibly pressurised environment, high-profile environment. I mean, we can see a picture, I think, of you with... Is it Graham Souness and? It's a, it's a very, he always, he, Graham Souness always looks like that. He is, he? He, he's as mean as he played. Dower. And if you, are, if you ask him a bad question, that is the look he gives that's you. That, that's Gary Neville. And Gary that's Neville. Yeah. At Old Trafford. I think at it's Old Man Trafford. United Leicester early in the season. Yeah. But it's, it's a great, I mean, I love the thought that, you know, you're there with very high profile figures and you're a Christian. So how do you sort of work those two together? You know, what's your approach to being in a very pressurised environment and being a Christian? How do you sort of try and make that work? Well, it was interesting when I, when I got the job on Blue Peter. It, I, I, it was my four, uh, sorry, third attempt to get it, um, and I knew it was my last chance. And I was replacing Richard Bacon, who'd got sacked in very, very famous circumstances yeah. over, over a story involving cocaine. So whoever was taking over for him, there was a massive amount of media interest. Who would they go for? Would they play it safe? And the news got out early in the January of, of 1999. And all they knew about this Simon guy, his dad was a vicar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Music to the ears of the likes of The Sun, who announced it with the headline, Pew Peter. <laughs> Phil Jupitus, <laughs> who was guest presenting on The Big Breakfast on Channel 4, which used to be a, a breakfast show <laughs> on Channel 4, he was going through the, the papers and he got to the article in The Guardian. Now, I used to work on a Scripture Union beach mission in Cromer every summer. And we just put on lots of events for kids, but there was a Christian ethos to it. Uh, the Guardian, didn't, they just ignored all that and just said I was a Bible basher who would be found in the summer walking up and down the beaches of Cromer with his floppy Bible preaching, preaching at people. At people. Yeah, so it. Phil Jupiter's had a dig at me over that, so oh, they're, really, they're really hedging their bets with this one. So straight away, I was put out there as a Christian. I had no choice mm. in that being revealed. And I remember on Blue Peter getting quite a lot of letters from, from Christians saying, really looking forward to seeing how you witness about your faith on TV. I'd get those bracelets. You remember the WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? I had them sent through and people say, please, would you wear this? And then everyone will see it when you're doing the mates and stuff. And it was a difficult one because actually I used to try and explain to people, what do you expect? You know, my current role, how do I witness as a Christian? Could I possibly come on air for that game at Old Trafford between Manchester United and Leicester and come on air with something like this? You know, you know, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. It is Manchester United against Leicester. We're in the company of Graham Souness and Gary Neville. Before we hear from them, I would just like everybody at home to know that you are loved by God. You are accepted <laughs> by Jesus. And there is nothing you can do that will make, you, make him love you more and nothing you can do <laughs> that will make him love you less. May God be with you as we enjoy this football. Graham, let's talk United. <laughs> That would be the last match yeah. I'd ever do. I think we'd like you to have a go. Oh, okay. Just for the comedy value. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. No, but right. it's, for me, it's always about being true to Come who on. I am. Absolutely. Because you can quite easily get carried away, mm. especially in the Blue Peter days where a lot of people watched it with the fame. You can get carried away with the fact that they, you know, they pay you quite well. Mm. All these things can become the dominant factor. How popular I am. What can I buy with, the, with that paycheck this week? And actually, I always said right from the start, I want to remain the person I am. Yeah. And I said to my friends, if I ever change, you have to tell me if I've mm. changed. Mm. And it's been all about treating people as you would want to be treated. Mm. And, um, you know, Dan Walker, I know from BBC Breakfast, and I, I speak mm. to him a little bit. He spoke to me on the phone a while ago, and he said that Jane, one of our makeup ladies, also works on BBC Breakfast. And she was chatting to Dan about me, and he said, I just want to let you know, she was talking about you and just saying how down to earth you are, how you treat everyone the same, the respect you have for people. Come she on. just says there's mm. something about him. And he said, mate, I'm just telling you that to encourage you. And I thought, well, if I'm doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm at least yeah. doing something. Yeah, fantastic. 
Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll be praying for you because I think it's a pressurized environment to be. I mean, everyone faces the challenge yeah. of representing exactly. faith at work, don't they? But um, that's fantastic. So it's Father's Day today. Um, you have a father and you are a father. Yeah. I think we can see a photo, actually, of you guys uh, was that, in the, was that in the dugout? Uh, yeah, Norwich gave us a lovely day out. So it was the first ever match for Ethan. It was against Manchester City the season before last. It was nil-nil. He described it as utterly boring. But I said, nil-nil <laughs> against Man City for us is decent. It's a good result. Uh, and my dad as well, who's, his health's not great now, so he was in a wheelchair. But it was a, it was a really special day. It was the, it was the three Brilliant. Thomas generations. Yeah. And I remember my first match with my old man. So it was, a, it was a great day. So just for those of us who are fathers, yeah. you know, you've been fathered, you are a father. One bit of advice, what would you say you're learning, you have learned about what it means to be a good dad? I, I was so struck by that video earlier. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. And the one thing that kept coming back and back again is that indescribable love that mums and dads have for their kids when they're first born. I remember mm. holding Ethan for the first time, and I, I was so identified with what people were saying, just that incredible love. But time is so precious. Mm. And that's the one thing I think... I, I've read those articles which sometimes list the regrets of the dying have. You know, people who are terminally ill and have spoken to palliative care nurses about the kind of things they look back on in life and regret. And one of them that's always in there is, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. Yeah. And time is so precious. As we know, as we get older, it just goes quicker mm. and quicker. And I just try with Ethan. Uh, of course, to be the best dad I, I can. I, I often get it wrong, but don't we all? But for me, it's, it's giving him time because that's the one thing you will never get back. You know, he's, he's seven and however many days today, he'll be seven and a bit more days tomorrow. You can't get these moments yeah, back. And that's so I good. say always, however busy life might be, <laughs> however tempting it is yeah. to spend a bit more time on your iPhone or your, your iPad, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, you won't get that time back with your little ones. Mm. Give them the mm. time that they Brilliant. need and they'll respect you and love you for it. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. And Simon, just finally... You know, you are a father, you've been father, but you also, I know it's really clear, beautifully clear with you that you know that God is your heavenly father. Yeah. And in all of life's challenges, both the good times and the tough seasons, the family pressures, work pressures, what difference does it make to you to say, I've got God as my father? Um, everything. Hmm. I mean, it is, it's, um, yeah, it, it is everything. We had, um, you know, keeping the Father's Day theme going, we, we had a quite a, a difficult challenge a few years back and my, my dream was to have three kids you know I grew up in a family of three my both my sisters have got three kids um, and I desperately wanted Ethan to have brothers and sisters um, and we had Ethan back in uh, 2009 uh, and actually it turns out he's a real miracle because we found out when we got a couple of years later and wanted to add to the family that, that Gemma had a really serious fertility issue um, and so we went through IVF. We went through it two times, and it was tough um, for anyone who's been through it. And I guess there's probably some people in here who have or have had fertility mm. issues. It's just really hard. Everyone around you is, is having kids for fun. You know, social media makes you more aware of it mm, than ever before. Yeah. And first time didn't work, and it's poor old Gemma had to go through all the injections and the changes that brings to your body. It's hard for the woman especially. And we went for it one more time. and said, we'll give it one more go. Uh, and she got pregnant. Uh, we were reserved in our celebrations because we had a long way to go, but we were just overjoyed that, that we had got to first base. Uh, and then very sadly, only a few weeks in, um, Gemma had a miscarriage and the dream wow. was over. And I found it so tough. We've, we both found it incredibly tough. Um, and I dealt with it in a classic bloke way as, as the um, 
The councillor said, you've retreated to your cave. And she said to Gemma, just let him sit in his cave for a bit. When he's ready to come out, he'll come out. But I was angry with God. Um, I didn't understand why it was that God wouldn't bless Ethan with a brother or sister, and yet, and this is terribly judgmental, but this is how I was feeling, yet I see that family at his nursery. I see the dad shouting at his kids every morning. They've got four kids. Mm. He walks them home on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday afternoon with a can of beer in his hand, shouting at the kids. Why have you blessed them? Mm. What, what's so hard about blessing us with one last kid? I was angry with them. I felt God wasn't there. I felt alone. And eventually, uh, the anger subsided, and I came to realize and understand that actually, in, throughout those weeks where I ran, ranted against God, that actually he'd been stood there the whole time. Mm. He'd not once stepped away and said, I'll come back in a bit when you're ready to talk. He was there. His hand had always been on my shoulder. Mm. And I think back to that amazing parable of the good shepherd. And Jesus told that parable, he was talking about the shepherd mm. who loses one single sheep. He could easily write it off as a business expense loss and say, I'm not going to spend my whole evening looking mm. for that sheep, going across all of the land. But as Jesus says in that parable, the shepherd goes out and he looks and he looks and he looks until he found that sheep. And I know that in that time that Jesus was always looking for me. Yeah. He'd never, ever Come stepped on. away. And yeah. if you're in a situation now, maybe like this, maybe there's something you're angry about God with. Maybe actually on Father's Day today, you've got an issue with your dad. Maybe there's something unresolved. Maybe there's a lot of forgiveness that needs to happen. Perhaps there's a lot of regret about a dad who's passed on about the things that never happened. And actually God says to you today, I'm standing alongside me. And if you turn to me, my hand doesn't leave you. And actually we can do some business together and get this sorted. And, and you know, I'm not saying it's not been easy since. There are still times when I get reminded, when I see Ethan playing on his own on holiday, that, of that sadness that comes back. Mm. But every time I know that at that point, God says, I'm standing with you alongside this. I understand, but I'm with you. Amen. Fantastic. Oh, really good. And I think we're just so grateful for your honesty as well, transparency. It means a huge amount to us. And um, I know Simon said he'd, he'd love to just pray for, to finish for, for us. And so I want to just invite you if, you, you know, if you are a dad here or otherwise facing some challenges, or even maybe today you just sort of want to reach out to a God who's there as our Heavenly Father, then as Simon prays, why not in your heart just reach out through this prayer in your own words to God? So Simon, would you yeah, finish? We'd love you just to pray for us. Thank you. Father God, I thank you for this uh, amazing church. I thank you for the privilege of being here amongst all these people today. Father, I thank you that you are the Good Shepherd. I thank you that no matter where we've been, no matter where we've tried to go to, no matter what we've done, you never, ever give up on us. Mm. I want to pray specifically, Lord, for the dads here today, for those dads who sit here and feel that they've failed as a dad, that they haven't got it right. I pray that today would be the day that they start getting it right, that they would turn to you and draw on your strength and on your wisdom, and that that blessing that you give them would begin to bless their family. I pray for those people here today for whom this is a painful day. They're reminded of the dads that they've lost, for the ladies and the men here, and the young people who are thinking of dads who are no longer with them. I pray this would be a day of comfort, bring healing to those hearts that are hurting. And I pray also for those who perhaps at the moment with their own dads, that relationship is not right, and it needs sorting, it needs healing. I pray that today would be the day that that healing begins mm. in the name of Jesus. Mm. 
And I pray for anyone here today who perhaps doesn't know you and doesn't know what it's like to have a heavenly father who loves them unconditionally, who will run to the furthest place to catch you, who will never leave your side. I pray that this might be the day that you come to know your heavenly father, the Mm. heavenly father who will never, ever, ever let you down. Mm. I pray that you would know this today. And I pray for everybody here that you would just be blessed as you go out here from today. And thank you again for the privilege of being amongst you today. Mm. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Simon, thank you so much. You've been Absolute a star. pleasure. It's been our pleasure. Please thank Gemma and Ethan for letting, uh, letting you come and play with us. Thank you. Thank Simon you, everyone. Simon Thomas, let's hear it for Simon. Thank you so much.